Welcome to The Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's text is Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. To them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he went out, and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give it to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, 
And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 20 starts out with an excellent little reminder that the chapters aren't actually divided in the original text of Scripture. It starts with the word for, F-O-R, the preposition. It's an explanation. Jesus uses the parable to start of the chapter to describe, to explain, to teach to his disciples what he was just telling them at the end of the last. As they were fighting, struggling, trying to understand and comprehend the ways of the Lord's kingdom, they thought it's an earthly kingdom. They thought that men of fighting age, men of wealth, were of value, and that little children had nothing to offer. They thought that divorce was easy and normal. They thought they didn't have to forgive, or at least not much. Over the last couple of chapters, Jesus has been taking all of these things, turning them upside down on them. The kingdom of heaven is not as we expect it to be. And so as we start this parable, maybe ask your children, see if they can unpack the parable. What is it that Jesus is teaching us here? Our focus is going to be on that line from yesterday, verse 26. Jesus, talking about salvation, said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. They thought they had to buy it, earn their way in. But you can't. You don't. Instead, it's not about what man does. It's about the generosity of God. And that's what we see in the parable. So, to unpack it briefly, let's just do a quick summary. You have a master who has a vineyard. He goes out into the marketplace first thing in the morning, finds some workers to come and help him work his vineyard. Pays them a day's wage. They agree. Fair pay? All right, we'll go. And then he goes out again. So that was 6 o'clock in the morning. He goes at a third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour. So 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 in the afternoon. He goes out again at the 11th hour. It'd be 5 o'clock, late in the day. The sun is getting nearly set. At the point the day is over, people go home to their families. So he's finding these different workers, people who are in the marketplace looking for work, and he gives it to them. And he says he'll treat them fairly, he'll pay them as is appropriate. Now, there is no parable here at all if they're paid in the order that they worked. So if the men who worked first, if they're paid first, they would have gotten their denarius, they would have gone home, the next guys could come up, they also get a denarius, then they go home excited, right? And then so forth all the way to the end. It would still be about the master's generosity, but you lose the point of comparison, which is important, and we don't want to drop that. At least not yet, not from the theology of this. We do want to drop the point of comparison with one another. That's kind of the point. 
the master flips it around. And he starts with those who only work the hour. And he gives them a full day's pay. That's what a denarius is, one day's income. And then those who worked three hours and six hours and nine hours came, and they also get a full day's pay. So when the guys who had worked all day, the 12 hours, come, they expect that they're going to get more because that guy who worked only the one hour, well, he got a denarius too. But they also get just a denarius. And they're upset by it. And when they point it out to the master of the house, who is the Lord, his response is that he has not wronged them in any way. They got the reward that they expected for their labor. They worked for the day, they got a day's pay. This is what they agreed to. But the master wanted to be generous to others. How can you fault the master for being generous? Is it not his money to do with as he pleases? So our parable here is it doesn't matter how many years you've been a Christian, your length of service, it doesn't matter your accomplishments for the church. We're Christians. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. There is but one Jesus. There is but one paradise. The kingdom has no place for self-promotion. The kingdom has no place for competition. There is no place in the kingdom for us to look at each other and say, I have no need of you. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 talking that way about the body of Christ. The hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. I can't say I'm more important than you, or you can't say you're more important than me. We are family, one body, the members of Christ. I also want to point out here, everything is fine until they take their eyes off the master and they look at their fellow worker. This is very much the same as what happens to Peter, literally in real time, Back in chapter 14, when Jesus summons him, Peter says, you know, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus tells him to come. And as he's going, at first, Peter's walking on water. And then he remembers the storm. And he becomes fearful. And he begins to sink. The trouble comes when we take our eyes off of Christ and the gifts that Christ gives and we start focusing on other things, the worries and the concerns of this world, the comparison to one another, and so forth. Hold on to that. That comes back in the chapter of the conversation with James and John and the disciples in just a little bit. But I do also want to point out the connection back to chapter 19. This is not the world's way. This is not the way you might expect. The kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom of man. Everything's turned upside down. This parable is used to teach more on that idea that the first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus then after this, for the third time in the book, will give his disciples a prediction of his passion, his death and his resurrection. They're now on their way to Jerusalem. Holy week is upon us. We'll be at triumphal entry tomorrow in chapter 21. This time, there is no recorded response from the disciples. So you can see a progression. First recording of the Passion Prediction, Peter rebukes Jesus. Matthew 16, Jesus ends up saying, Get behind me, Satan. 
The second one comes right after the transfiguration account in chapter 17. After God the Father has declared from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so he speaks it again, and this time they don't rebuke him. They listen, but they're cut to the heart. They're grieved by it. They're distressed by it. And this time, maybe they do have a response, but if they do, Matthew doesn't record it. So you can see grammatically, structurally, in the book at least, that their, their hardness of heart to Christ's death softens over the three accounts. They still don't seem to have picked up on the resurrection at any of these moments, though. Then we get Mom's request. So, mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus says, what do you want? Keep that question in mind for the last paragraph as well. And she says, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. I'm confident that it is safe to say she does not have the heavenly throne room in her purview here. She is thinking of an earthly throne that Jesus is about to rebel against Rome, overthrow them, take back Jerusalem. There's going to be a palace again. Palace of the king. He'll have a throne. I want my sons to be at your right and your left. Give them the highest positions of power and authority in your new kingdom that you will establish for all of us. That's the picture. Jesus knows that is not what his kingdom is. And that's why he says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Good family conversation here. What is this cup? Matthew 26, verses 36 to 46 will give you the answer. As Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking that the Father would take this cup from him. It is the cup of suffering. And 14 times in the Old Testament you can find that language of a cup that is described that is a cup of suffering. It is a reference to what Jesus is about to endure on behalf of his people. That he will suffer. That he will lay down his life. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And the answer, we are able. Notice there's nothing humble about that answer. There's nothing serving about that answer, which is going to be the end of this paragraph. It's bragging, it's boastful, prideful. And they still don't even know what the cup is. They didn't clarify. They think it's a king's cup. A royal feast. Sure, we can drink that. Right here with you. We're going to fight beside you. They don't recognize that he's talking about his death. And then he says, you will drink my cup. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we see James put to death by Herod Agrippa, roughly 44 AD. His brother John is the only one of the 12 apostles to avoid martyrdom. And it's not for lack of trying One of the Roman emperors attempted to have John boiled alive in a vat of oil, but the Lord miraculously spared him, rescued him from that. 
So the emperor, realizing he could not kill John, cast him into exile on the prison island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea instead. It's not until after the emperor has passed away and you get a new emperor on the throne, John near the end of his life, that he's allowed to return from that exile. I believe he went to live in the city of Ephesus and lived out his last days there. To sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. For even Jesus is not the highest authority. He is subject to the will of his Father, which we again will see in the prayer in Matthew 26 in Gethsemane. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Why are they upset? They're jealous because they too want what the brothers just asked for. They still don't understand the parable that Jesus just told. They're still in comparison mode, trying to fight and promote themselves amongst the group. And so Jesus teaches them again. He calls all 12 of them to himself and points out the way of the world. Rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They exercise authority over them. And then he turns it upside down. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And thanks be to God that he did that Jesus Christ came and took away our sin by his death on the cross. Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem the next day on his way to conquer and overthrow Rome and sit on his throne in a palace. But instead, as we sing in hymn number 339, lift up your heads, you everlasting doors. Come, praise this king who claims the cross as throne. Praise him alone. There is a cross, and Jesus will sit upon it. But it is a cross of wood. And in this way, interestingly enough, who is it that will be seated at his right and at his left hand when he comes into his kingdom? It will be the two thieves, crucified with him on Good Friday, one who believes and one who rejects the word of God, as it has been prepared by his Father. As disciples, this is who we are called to be. Our master did not come to lord his authority over creation. He came to give his life. He came to serve. This is our call. To serve one another. To serve those around us. Our text ends with Jesus continuing the journey towards Jerusalem. The city of Jericho is 19 miles roughly northeast east, and there's once again a large crowd, and there's two blind men who cry out to him as they have heard that he's coming, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. We'll come back to the blind men in just a moment, but first, verse 31, the crowd rebuked them. You can ask your kids if that sounds familiar. Um, 
so-called worthless people being rebuked by those close to Jesus. Sound like the children back in chapter 19 that the parents were bringing to Jesus and the disciples rebuked them because they did not believe the children to be worth anything to a rebellion. They did not think Jesus had time for such things. That's the mindset for the crowd here as well. There's no time for blind beggars. There's a war at hand. What good's a blind man? Ironically, um, Jesus could probably not ask for more loyal followers than what becomes of this text. I mean, talk about building an army on the earth. If you can perform miracles like healing the blind, talk about building an army on earth. Just go around and heal every blind man you can find, every lame man you can find. They're going to follow you. They're going to pledge their lives, their service, their swords to your name. They will fight to the death because you gave them back their life. Also not why Jesus came. Not at all. So the crowd had rebuked them, but not Jesus. They cry out all the more. And although it's not identical, look at the question Jesus asks them and compare it to what he asked the mother of James and John back in verse 21. What do you want me to do for you? When the mom heard that question, she asked for glory. But when the blind men hear that question, they ask for Jesus to remove their brokenness. It is worth mentioning that no one who refers to Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew as the son of David leaves without what they asked for. Blind men in chapter 9, verse 27 the Canaanite woman in chapter 15, verse 22, these blind men here using the messianic title of Jesus Christ from 2 Samuel chapter 7, the son of David who would sit on his throne in Jerusalem forever. They ask him for the impossible to open their eyes, to give them sight. They ask him for what is impossible for man, but they trust that he is more. They trust that he can do it. They have faith. And so Jesus touches their eyes. They recover their sight. They follow him. Very similar to chapter 9's healing of the blind men as well, but there's not a call here for them to be silent as there was then. Instead, Jesus knows that the hour of his suffering is at hand. That was the reason he didn't share it before, was so that he had the freedom to move about, to go to different villages without even greater crowds swarming him, but that he could preach and teach as he had come to do. But now, now he's reached his destination. So go, go tell everybody. That's true for us as well.